Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Connie Margata DeBate was born on July 31, 1976. In 1995, she graduated from Ellington High School in Pennsylvania and then went on to earn an undergraduate degree from the University of Connecticut. In 2003, she married Richard DeBate and they would have two sons together. They were living at 7 Birchview Road in Ellington, Connecticut, and Connie had a job as a pharmaceutical sales rep employed with Reckett Benkeiser. On December 23, 2015, while their sons were at school, Richard called 911 and claimed that his wife was the victim of a home invasion and had suffered a fatal gunshot wound. He described the suspect as a tall, obese man with a deep voice like actor Vin Diesel's, wearing camouflage and a mask. When the police arrived, they found Richard in the kitchen with one arm and leg somewhat tied to a folding chair with zip ties. When asked where the intruder was, he claimed he scared the person off after his wife was shot dead. Interestingly, the gunshot wound Connie died from was from a Magnum 357, the same type of gun that Richard had purchased months prior. As for the events of that morning, Richard said that he had returned home from work shortly after 9 a.m. to pick up his laptop that he had forgotten. He said that's when he came across the masked, camouflaged intruder upstairs rummaging in the closet. He said the intruder then subdued him by applying pressure to his wrist. Meanwhile, Connie came home and he yelled to her to run, but the man chased her down into their basement and shot her. Next, he claimed that the intruder tied him to a chair, slashed his legs, and burned him with a torch. Finally, he said he was able to set the man's mask on fire, causing him to run away, leaving Richard alive to crawl up the stairs, still tied to a chair, and press the panic button on his alarm. Richard had said that Connie was shot and killed around 9.05 a.m., but her Fitbit, surveillance video, and GPS cell phone data show that she didn't even leave the YMCA until 9.18 a.m., She then sent a message from her phone via Facebook to a psychotherapist requesting an appointment to be hypnotized, stating that a lot was going on right now in her life. At this point, her Fitbit would remain idled while she drove the nine-minute drive home. From 9.40 to 9.46 a.m., Connie posted two videos on Facebook using her iPhone and then used Facebook Messenger to message a friend. It was determined that the IP address used for the Facebook activity came from the couple's home. According to Connie's Fitbit, her last movement was at 10.05 a.m. At 10.11 a.m., Richard activated the panic alarm. 
It was the only time the panic alarm was activated that morning, even though Richard claims there was another one while he was driving to work. At 10.16 a.m., the state police received a 911 call from the alarm company, and at 10.20, Richard called 911. At this point, investigators realized that Richard's account of the morning was very contradictory. Come to find out, Richard had actually emailed his boss from home on his laptop at 9.04 to say he would be late for work. Also, at 9.18 a.m., when he says he is being attacked, he is actually searching for Connie's spin class times and then search for the ESPN show Mike and Mike on ESPN.com. It also didn't appear the house had been broken into and there were no signs of a major struggle inside the home. According to those close to Connie, she never talked about getting divorced, and her only complaint was typical financial concerns and that she was stressed about the amount of money Richard was spending. Her loved ones described Richard as odd and quirky and had an unusual obsession with Superman. The real story is that Richard was having an affair with a longtime close friend of his, and she was seven months pregnant with his child. He had told the mistress in a text message that he and Connie were getting a divorce soon, but shortly before the murder, the two went on a romantic vacation together, which Connie posted on Facebook. The mistress saw the post and confronted him about it. Then just one day before the murder, he sent another text to his mistress, reassuring her that the divorce was still happening. The month prior, in November of 2015, He texted his mistress and told her that he and his wife had talked about divorce and were on the same page. However, he told her it would be slow moving because of the kids. About a year after the murder, Richard was charged with first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and providing a false statement. Data from digital footprints from cell phones, laptops, security alarm records, text messages, Facebook messages, and Connie's Fitbit data led to his arrest. Detectives also learned that five days after the shooting, Richard tried to cash in on Connie's almost half a million dollar life insurance policy, but the insurance company denied his claim. Two years earlier, he had stopped making payments on his policy, and just a couple of weeks after her murder, he withdrew more than $90,000 from a Fidelity investment account that belonged to Connie. He had also taken out a credit card without her knowledge and used it to pay for flowers for his mistress and spent more than $1,200 at a Tallinn strip club and stayed at a nearby Motel 6. His mistress testified for the prosecution at the trial. During the trial, the jurors were shown 600 exhibits and heard the testimony of about 130 witnesses, and in August of 2022, Richard was found guilty and sentenced to 65 years behind bars. Gladys Ariano was born on October 24, 1978. At the age of 17, she was living in Boyle Heights, California, the same neighborhood where residents beat up serial killer Richard Ramirez and held him until the police arrived. She was described as beautiful, intelligent, and gorgeous with a radiant smile. However, in January of 1996, she would mysteriously go missing. Days later, on January 30, 1996, after her family reported her missing, her partially clothed body was found at the bottom of a valley in Malibu's Topanga Canyon area. 
It was determined that she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. DNA was collected from her body and uploaded to CODIS and state databases, but there were no matches and the case would go unsolved for over 24 years. There were many hurdles along the way until retired detectives Joe Purcell and Sean McCarthy, working part-time in the unsolved case unit, finally caught a break. In 2019, a man named Jose Luis Garcia was arrested for domestic assault. Detective Purcell received a search warrant to obtain an oral cotton swab from him while being questioned by detectives. The DNA sample was sent in for forensic testing, and finally, after numerous delays due to the COVID pandemic, they received the results which matched Gladys's killer's DNA. Meanwhile, Garcia had moved to Dallas and was rearrested by U.S. Marshals in Texas in the fall of 2020. His DNA was retested and once again it was a match. Garcia would have been 19 years old at the time of the murder and lived near Gladys' family home. It's still unclear if the two were connected somehow. Her sister, Elizabeth Ariano, and niece Samantha Marino spoke lovingly of Gladys at the press conference and how much they miss her. Hopefully, now Gladys can finally rest in peace. Dilcia Mejia was born on September 12, 1988, to Honduran immigrants. At the age of 16, she was living in the Colonial Acres Mobile Home Park at 9674 Northwest 10th Avenue in Miami, Florida, with her mother, Delcia Oliva, and stepfather, Raul Mata. She was a Miami Beach High School sophomore and described as a bright, happy, and sensitive young lady. She loved her dog, Rocco, who she was very protective over and wanted to be a police detective or flight attendant when she grew up. On September 16, 2004, a few days after turning 16, Dilcia was seen at home around 11 p.m. watching TV. When her mother left for work at 5.30 a.m., she assumed her daughter was sound asleep in her room. However, this was not the case, and at 9 a.m., her stepfather called 911 frantic and said he found his daughter in her bedroom and said someone had killed her and she had slash marks on her neck. The wound to her neck was brutal, and she had numerous scratches and bruises on her forearm and inner bicep. Strangely, there were no signs of forced entry, and nothing was stolen from the house. Her stepfather, Mata, was questioned and adamantly denied any involvement in her murder. He did admit they hadn't been getting along very well and said she was a liar, but no arrest was made and the case would go unsolved for the next 16 years. Her mother immediately suspected her husband of being involved when she discovered the news of her daughter's murder. DNA was collected under her fingernails during the autopsy and later used to create a DNA profile once DNA advancements were made. After her daughter's death, she separated from Mata, who then moved to Watsonville, California, where he worked as a nurse in the emergency room at Watsonville Community Hospital. In early 2020, the Miami-Dade police received an anonymous tip leading to her case being reopened. It was also learned that the school counselor at Delcia's school had plans to tell her mother about inappropriate sexual behavior Mata had made toward her daughter. In September 2020, 46-year-old Mata was arrested at the Hotel Paradox in Santa Cruz, California, 16 years after the murder. 
He was charged with first-degree murder when the DNA under her fingernails linked him to the crime. At this point in his life, he had remarried, had a child, and was working as a nurse, likely believing he had gotten away with murder. However, three weeks later, while in custody, he stabbed himself with part of an ink pen in his femoral artery. He would die from that injury three weeks later on October 20th, 2020. Robin Gisela Brooks was born in Virginia on March 30, 1960, to parents Gisela and Burton Brooks. At the age of 20, Robin would move from Highland, New York, to an apartment in Rancho Cordova, California, with her sister. About six months later, on April 24, 1980, Robin left her shift at donut time shortly after midnight. She didn't own a car and would walk to and from work since her garden club apartment was only a block away. She was expected to meet up with friends for a swim date after her shift, but never showed up. After being unable to contact her for some time, her friends forced their way into her apartment and found Robin dead in her bedroom. She was lying face down on her waterbed where she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. The knife used to attack her had also punctured the mattress. The suspect's DNA was collected and preserved until DNA advancements were made. The DNA came from the semen found in her body and blood from a cut the killer sustained during the attack. Without any solid leads, the case would go unsolved for the next 40 years. Meanwhile, in 2004, a DNA profile was created from the DNA stored in evidence. That profile was entered into CODIS, but no matches were found and the case remained unsolved for many more years. Then in 2017, investigators teamed up with Parabon Nano Labs for DNA phenotyping to create a DNA snapshot of the killer, predicting ancestry and physical appearances. Once again, the information did not lead to the killer. The following year, in 2018, the DNA profile was used for investigative genetic genealogy, and the killer was finally identified as Philip Lee Wilson. Wilson lived in a rental home on Happy Lane, less than two miles from Robin's apartment at the time of the murder. Wilson was arrested in his North Sacramento home on the 40th anniversary of her death, but denied ever knowing Robin or having ever been in her apartment. However, at trial, his attorney claimed that his client actually had known Robin and said the two had consensual sex and when he left, she was alive and well. His attorney then shifted the blame to Robin's sister's late boyfriend, Norbert Holston. He was dating her sister, Maria Eric, at the time of the murder, and it was common knowledge that he and Robin did not get along very well. This would not sway jurors, and on March 9, 2022, they found him guilty of the murder and rape of Robin. Robin's sister, Maria Eric, was present for the verdict and was overcome with emotion. It is also of note that Wilson's DNA matched a rape that occurred three weeks before Robin's murder, so she was definitely not his first victim. Thankfully, this man is now behind bars where he belongs, and Robin can finally rest in peace. Janet Elaine Love was born on September 22, 1953, to parents Charles and Dorothy Love in Rapides Parish, Louisiana. 
1985, at the age of 32, Janet moved to Bedford, Texas to work as a ticket agent for Delta Airlines at the nearby DFW airport. She was described as very independent, funny, loving, and was living alone in an apartment off of L. Don Dodson Drive. On April 21, 1986, Janet was scheduled to work the airport's 3 p.m. to midnight shift. When she strangely didn't show up, two of her co-workers went to her apartment to check on her. They were horrified when they discovered her lifeless, bloody body. During the investigation, police determined that someone had entered her apartment and sexually assaulted her before shooting and killing her. The case would go unsolved for the next 35 years, but during that time, authorities looked at many serial offenders trying to match somebody to the murder. In 1990, once CODIS became available, the DNA profile from the crime scene was entered, but there were no matches. Toward the end of 2020, a Texas Department of Public Safety grant allowed Bedford detectives to pursue advanced DNA testing on sexual assault cases. DNA from Janet's case was sent to the University of North Texas School Center for Human Identification. Then using thorough research, a genetic genealogist was able to give investigators the name of the likely killer. To confirm the man's identity, they requested DNA from two of his family members. The Bedford Police Department then announced they had determined her killer to be Ray Anthony Chapa. Chapa was 19 years old at the time of the murder and lived about 800 feet from Janet in a neighboring apartment complex. Chapa wouldn't face justice because he died in January 2021 from a terminal illness just nine months before police made their identification. It's unknown if Chapa knew Janet, but he was never considered a suspect in the past. Janet's younger sister, Rebecca Roberts, said it's probably best that he's not alive and that their family doesn't have to go through a trial and all of the roller coaster of emotions that would come with that. However, she said although it won't bring her sister back, it does give a sense of closure, and her family is very thankful for the hard work and persistence it took to solve her murder. Police say Chapa also lived in Illinois and Montana, and authorities have been checking to see if he's connected to any additional crimes. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.